Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. The reading today is from Psalm 84. It's found on page 406 of the Church Bibles, if you have one of those. So it says, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even a sparrow has found a home and a swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in the house of you, ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on your pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they may make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also covers it with its pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before you, God, in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose way of your life is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is one who trusts in you. So I'm just going to pray before Katie comes up, and then she can come up and speak your word. So, Heavenly Father, thank you all for the psalm. Thank you all for the words in it. Thank you, God, that says where two or three gathers, there will be in your midst. So help now, Katie, as she comes up. Help us to have ears to listen and hearts to just hear and receive your words. Often we sing this song on a Sunday, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And thank you, God, that we can sing this, these words, because not because who we are, what we've done, but because who you are and what you've done for us on the cross. So now help Katie, she comes up to speak your words. In your name we pray, amen. Hello, um, I'm Katie, and today we're going to be continuing our series in the Psalms together as part of our summer series looking at contentment. And today we're going to be looking specifically at how we can find contentment in God's presence, regardless of our circumstances. In the Bible, the Apostle Paul, who suffered some pretty tough things, beatings, imprisonment, and abandonment by his friends, was able to say, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. To be honest, when I read those words, I realise that they are Paul's words and not mine. Um, If it was me rewriting this to fit my own story, it would probably be something more like, I often feel discontent when circumstances are not going my way, and at these times being content in God is a struggle. Perhaps you feel a little bit like that too. And yet Psalm 84, like the Apostle Paul, shows us another way. This psalm teaches us that we can be content in any circumstance because in God's presence, we have what is best. So today I'm going to explore three reasons why we often experience discontentment in our lives and then suggest three antidotes that this psalm gives which will help us instead to find contentment in God's presence. So let's look firstly at why it is that we're often discontent. Usually discontentment comes when there is a mismatch between our desires and our experienced reality. We feel restless because we want excitement but find life repetitive and mundane. 
We feel discontent in our jobs because we want praise, but our hard work is going unnoticed. We feel discontent with our houses because we look at the bigger and better ones our friends have elsewhere and want them ourselves. We feel discontent in our relationships or marriages because the desire to be known and known feels difficult, hindered by miscommunication or misunderstanding. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that these desires are necessarily bad. It is natural to want to have a secure home, to be appreciated for the hard work we do, to have meaningful relationships. Yet, often these desires can become enlarged, inflamed, or self-focused. We run desperately after them, trying to satisfy them ourselves. We spend hours on property pal. We work overtime to make sure our work doesn't go unnoticed. We go from one dating app or relationship to the next, trying to find the one person who will satisfy us and never let us down. These desires start to control our lives, and we are left with a sense of restless, wandering, searching and it is exhausting. Here's a picture I found in a book which I think describes the human plight, what we are all trying to do. In the words of the little mole, we are trying to get home. We are born into this life seeking a place of rest, of safety, of security, of intimacy, all of which we try to fill with the things we see around us. Yet, it's not working. So reason number one for our discontentment is that often we are thirsting for the wrong thing. C.S. Lewis once said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. This is what the psalmist in today's passage has discovered, that he has been made not only for the what we can see now world, but for another kingdom, an unseen one, where God resides at the center. And he has realized that this kingdom, that relationship with the God who reigns there, is what he has been truly made for. It is in this God that all his deepest desires are met. In finding God, he has found his home. And the same is true for us too. Look at verse three. The psalmist says of the Lord's dwelling place, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest. This is an image of invitation rather than distance or rejection, and it is extended to the lowliest of creatures. If even the sparrow is welcome in God's presence, then how much more human beings the crowning glory of his creation? Don't we all long to be brought in and accepted and valued? We find a welcome in God. Then look at the safety of this home. It is somewhere the sparrow might have her young. Having offspring, nurturing them, these are deeply vulnerable and precious acts. And in God's presence, the sparrow can do this without fear. It is an image of absolute safety and trust, of deep intimacy. Do we long to be known and accepted where our hearts are most vulnerable and with the things most precious to us? We find that tender care and deep intimacy in God. Look also at where the sparrow's home is in the courts of this God, near to the altar. This was the place in the temple where sacrifices were made for the forgiveness of people's sins. Don't we also long for peace, for reconciliation, to know that despite our mistakes, things are okay? Well, we can draw near to God because he has made a way for our ultimate peace and forgiveness. And look finally at the way the psalmist refers to the king who dwells at the center of these courts. He says, my God, my king. 
There's a sense of loyalty given and ownership taken. The psalmist knows that he belongs here. It's personal. Don't we too want to give ourselves to something, to someone? We belong to God. We have relationship with him. The psalmist realizes that all his deepest desires find their home in God. And as he trusts this, he starts to thirst for God. And why does this surprise us? In the creation story in Genesis, we are told that God made humankind in paradise to walk with him. So when we are in God's presence, we are being who we were made to be. We've truly come home. Those thirsts and desires for earthly things, they point us to something deeper and eternal, God himself. So the first antidote to our discontentment, the way that we will find contentment in God, is that we need to thirst for God above all else. As we start to look to God to fulfill our desires, our appetite for him will grow. We will start to desire him above all else, saying like the psalmist, my soul yearns, faints for the courts of my God. Okay, maybe this makes sense, but what do we do with those earthly desires for financial security and relational intimacy? Do we just try and bury them away beneath the surface? No, we need to allow them to lead us towards God rather than further away from him. We can certainly ask God for those desires now, but we need not despair if God says no, because we know that in him they will one day be fulfilled. And therefore we can let go. It's hard, it's really hard, and we can't do it on our own. But God will help us to cling more tightly to him and less tightly to the things of this world if we choose to bring those things to him, trusting that he knows best. The second major reason for our discontentment, I think, is that we often expect the good life now. The modern world has sold us the idea that our lives are about the individual pursuit of happiness, found through personal freedom and self-fulfillment. We can live our best life now, be who you want to be, make the life decisions that are best for you and most advantageous to where you want to get in life. And yet, this is a relatively new way of thinking which we have blindly bought into Christians, as Christians at times. For centuries, people experienced life here and now with hardship, um, and to have a reprieve of that was a blessing. Whereas now, we often live expecting life to be pain-free and for it to be going our way all the time. We live with a sense of entitlement. And when things don't go our way, we recoil and reel not knowing how to deal with the blip in the landscape of the nicely manicured life plan we had laid out for God. We get grumpy and jealous of what others have. We complain and moan at the slightest inconvenience. And these all reveal our discontent in who we are, where we are, and what God has for us now. We become those whose view of life is tainted by what we do not have rather than what we do. So what is the antidote to this? Psalm 84 teaches us that we need to remember that we are pilgrims in a passing world and that our future hope sustains us. A helpful way of remembering it is like climbing a mountain. It is the hope of the view at the top which will sustain us through the uphill struggle. So in this psalm, the writer is one of a number of God's people who have set their hearts on this pilgrimage to encounter God. For these Old Testament people, the pilgrimage was a literal one as well as a spiritual one, as the Lord's presence dwelt on earth in the temple at Jerusalem. 
The journey the psalmist narrates doesn't sound easy, walking through mountain valleys and amidst autumn rains. However, it is his delight and hope in what he knows he will experience on reaching the Lord's temple that keeps him going. He reminds himself in verse 10, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Then in verse 4, those who dwell in your house are ever praising you. What a picture of fullness and joy. He keeps the hope of being with God at the forefront of his mind. This future hope sustains him. We too are people who have chosen to set our hearts on pilgrimage as we journey towards our final home in God. Yet the journey is not easy. The world remains broken and sin has tainted everything. It can be hard to see and remember and enjoy the God that we worship. We can get lost in the busyness and distraction of everyday life and lose our focus. So we need to daily and frequently, individually and collectively, remember and rejoice in the fullness of God's promises to us. We need to remember the joy that will be ours on that final day when Jesus returns and we see him face to face. We need to imagine that moment where he will welcome us into his presence forever, finally at rest, fully content. We need to rejoice in the day when the world will be renewed and there will be no more suffering or injustice or pain. It is this future hope that will sustain us and will grant us contentment in God no matter the circumstances we face now. There are a number of other things uh, that I think we learn about the journey we find ourselves on now in this psalm. Um, the first is that the journey is the place of transformation. The pilgrims in this psalm are described as going, verse 7, from strength to strength. This implies change and growth. They do not need to be sorted before they embark on the journey, and neither do we. As we choose to seek contentment in God above all else, God will transform our apathy for him. He will grow our hope in him one step at a time. Secondly, the journey also gives new perspective. The psalmist says that those who pilgrimage will turn the valley of Baca into a place of springs, verse 6. The valleys in literature often signify the difficult times. And yet those who have their hearts fixed on God, it says here, make the valley a spring, a well of life from which others can also drink. It is the same for us. When our hearts are single-mindedly seeking God above all else, we will find that he brings us a change in perspective. He will bring hope and nourishment to our souls, even in the darkest of places. And the journey we are on as people of the new covenant is different to those of God's people in the old. Since the Holy Spirit dwells in us already, if we know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, then future hope has already broken into the here and now. Therefore, we can experience moments of being in God's presence now, which radically transform our hearts and grants us new perspective on the situations we face. As we read from the Bible, we hear God's voice. As we come to him in prayer, we experience relationship with him. Through spiritual gifts, we experience his presence and power as we worship corporately, as we serve one another, as we fellowship together, as we eat meals together. So let us continue to come into his presence now, as we're doing, gathered here, in order to meet with God and gain a transformed perspective for the day, the week, and the road ahead. Finally, the third thing we learn about this journey to contentment in God is that it is God who does this work in us, that it is not something we muster up ourselves. The psalmist says that God gives the strength to the pilgrims 
We cannot find our contentment in God if we just really try hard to do so. What actually qualifies us for this journey is our weakness. Then, and then only, are we in a place to receive the empowerment that God gives. So that thing in your life that causes a lack of peace and contentment in God, what is that? You may think that it's your greatest weakness, that it disqualifies you for this journey, but it's actually your entry point, the place where God wants to meet with you and empower you, transforming your weakness to strength so that you can say, it is truly God that did that work in me and helped me to rest in him. The final and third reason we tend to lack contentment in our lives is that we do not believe that being with God is what is best. I have many times said, yeah, yeah, God, I know you're with me in this situation, but. In other words, I've not believed that he is the best thing that he could give to me. Maybe you're the same. Often we have our own ideas of what we think is best for us. This attitude is completely different from the psalmist who is convinced that being a lowly doorkeeper in the house of his God is far superior to dwelling inside the cozy, sheltered tents of the wicked. He says serving God in a lowly position is better than lounging about in the tents of the wealthy because God's presence makes all the difference. The psalmist is sure that being with God is the best thing, and he knows this because he reminds himself of God's goodness. So, the third antidote to our discontentment, the secret to finding our contentment in God's presence, is to remind ourselves of God's goodness. One of the ways that we do that is by examining the character of God as revealed in his word. I wonder what holds more sway over your view of God. Is it your life experience or his word? One of the most common reasons I often hear for people not believing in God is that um, if this is the kind of world that God has made, then I don't want to have anything to do with the God that's made this broken, messed up world. But if we open the pages of the Bible, we see and hear of a very different God, one whose heart is broken for this world, who has compassion upon us, and who has done and is doing something about it. So God's word, not our experience, reveals the true heart of God to us. And as we get to know him, we will be convinced that he really is the best thing. Let's look at what the psalmist points out about God's goodness in these couple of verses. Verse 11, he says, He is the sun. So God is a sustaining power, without which there would be no life. He has given you life and breath in your lungs today. He is the one that sustains you. He is light in a dark world. He says God is a shield. God seeks to protect. He seeks to shelter the needy the vulnerable, he seeks to protect our hearts too. God bestows honor and favor, a sense of worth and dignity. God is the ultimate source of that love. He says, no good thing does he withhold. He is immensely generous. This is our God. And yet every day will be a battle to believe in God's goodness because we have an adversary who is prowling around looking to steal our joy. At the beginning of time, God gave Adam and Eve everything, life, each other, a whole garden to eat from, to work, himself. And yet, a sneaky serpent drew their eyes and attention to the one thing in the garden that was off limits. And he tried to make them believe that God was stingy instead of generous, that he was controlling instead of trustworthy. 
And so they turned from God and did their own thing. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of life, disbelieving God, trusting the lies of the serpent and their own desires instead. And yet the consequence of this was not good. They meant separation from God. It seems like God did have their best interests at heart after all. So when God seemingly withholds something good from your life, do not let your heart believe the lie that he has been stingy or mean-spirited. Because remember, it says here, he withholds no good thing. We know that he is generous. And so, like the psalm says, blessed is the one who trusts in God. So trust. Trust that he is good and you have what is best in him, even if all your emotions are screaming the opposite. And how is it we can be sure that God really is this good and generous? Because look at verse 11, it says, God withholds no good thing from those who are blameless, which certainly isn't me. I'm not blameless. Probably neither are you. But as we look to God's word, we are reminded of the one who was blameless, who truly desired God above all else, who hoped perfectly for the coming kingdom, who trusted wholly in the goodness of God, even though it meant intense suffering on earth. Jesus, the blameless one who was separated from the presence of his father in order that we who had turned our backs might be able to enjoy the presence of our good God forever. Jesus, who experienced an alienation from the home of his father's heart so that we could be forgiven and welcomed home. Jesus sacrificed himself, took your punishment by dying on the cross, and he rose again victorious so that you might find your contentment in him, so that you might be freed from remaining a restless wanderer on earth, so that you might come home. And this is why knowing that our home is with this God is such an amazing hope and the very best thing ever. He is so full of grace. He is so good to the unworthy and he is ours. So let us choose afresh to embark on the journey to find our contentment in God's presence, knowing that in Jesus we have what is best and that he is what our hearts have been made for. So let us thirst for him above all else. Let us remember we are pilgrims on a passing journey sustained by future hope. And let us remind ourselves of God's goodness. And we all need God's help for this. Um, so I'm going to finish in prayer. Um, but I also say, if you're here today and you're just really, really struggling to believe that God is good, then do come and get prayer. Come and pray with me, Steve, Leanne, anyone at the front. Um, yeah, come and ask someone else to stand with you and to pray in faith, maybe the faith you feel you don't have, because God wants to grant you strength for the journey. You just need to ask. So let's pray. Jesus, I praise you that you are God and that you are good, that your heart is for us and not against us, that you are immensely generous and you've held no good thing from us, even though we didn't deserve that, even though we were unworthy. We thank you, Father God, that you held not even your one and only son back, but you gave him for our sakes. Uh, Lord, we celebrate this, we rejoice in this. Would you make this truth like new to our hearts afresh today? Um, Father, help us to, to turn from the things of this world, Lord, that are 
keeping us bound and like captured. Um, would you free us, Jesus? Would you set the captive free, set us free from those things in our hearts that are captivating us? Um, might we be captivated afresh by you, Jesus, so that you become our greatest treasure and that we're able to find our peace and our rest and our contentment and our future in you. Amen.